And today I want to explore an interesting theme in our Parsha. We're going to find two instances in our Parsha where close relatives behave in diametrically opposing ways when faced with a similar situation. And one of the themes that we've been talking about on the Parsha podcast recently has been the idea that the deeds and the triumphs and the character of the forbearers influence the character of the progeny. And therefore, whenever we see inconsistencies in behavior between relatives, it does raise some eyebrows, it does raise some questions, and that is what we are going to do today. And I think when we start pulling the strands of this thread, and we try to untangle this subject, we find that it appears in all kinds of places in the Torah, and it contains some really fantastic and valuable lessons. I don't want to overhype this. And I know I missed the week, so I have a tendency. We have a tendency. There's the risk that I may try to overly inflate the importance of this Parsha podcast. But I think that we can say with some confidence that the lessons contained in this topic can change your life. Is that too bold of a sell? You listen and you let me know yourself. Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com. So Shemini is the eighth, the eighth day of the tabernacle, the first day of Nisan, the day when the tabernacle will be erected for good. For the first seven days, Moshe serves as the Kohen the high priest. And each day, each morning, he assembles the tabernacle in the morning and disassembles it at night when the service is concluded. And now, on the eighth day, on the Shemini, Moshe is going to hand over the reins to Aaron. Aaron is going to become the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And he is going to oversee the tabernacle together with his four sons henceforth. And the Torah describes what Aaron did on that day. He brings all the various sacrifices. And after some last second drama, a fire descends from heaven and consumes the sacrifices from atop the altar. And the nation is so awestruck, they fall on the ground and they shout with delight and awe. It seems like the promise, the bargain of the tabernacle has been actualized. Now, there's a very interesting exchange between Moshe and Aaron. This is in chapter 9, verse 7, the seventh verse of our Parsha. Vayomer Moshe el Aharon, and Moshe said to Aaron, Krav el come close to the altar and process the chatas, the sin offering, the ola, the elevation offering, and atone for you and for the whole nation. So Rashi points out that Moshe uses the term krav, come close, to encourage Aaron to go do the sacrifice. Rashi explains that Aaron was a little bit bashful, and he was a little bit scared to go and approach the altar. And Moshe says to him, why are you bashful? Why are you shy? This is the reason why you were chosen. And indeed, in the eighth verse of our Parsha, Aaron accepts this encouragement, this nudge, and indeed begins the process of the eighth day of the inauguration, the first day of Nisan, and does all these sacrifices. Aaron 
is initially bashful. He is diffident. He is maybe a bit unsure of himself. Maybe we can say that he has some imposter syndrome. Maybe he doesn't feel worthy to assume the role of the high priest. And Moshe nudges him. He encourages him. He says, Krav, come close. Go ahead. You were chosen for this. And indeed, Aaron goes forth. Aaron is being given a promotion. He's being promoted to become the high priest, to be the nation's spiritual representative before God. He is going to go into the Holy of Holies, each Yom Kippur, to beseech God to forgive the people. He is going to have the special eight garments of the high priest, the vestments of honor and glory. He is going to do the sacrifices and the offerings. But he is initially hesitant. He is diffident. He's unsure. He feels like maybe he's not the right man for the job. And Moshe has to encourage him and nudge him. This is what you were chosen for. This is what God wants of you. And Aaron accepts and goes forth. Aaron was too shy, too bashful, and Moshe had to encourage him to assume the role designated for him by God. Now, parenthetically, I saw a cute idea from one of the Hasidic masters. The Talmud in the book of Sota, page 5a, it's talking about hubris and arrogance and how bad it is to be haughty and to feel superior over others. And the Talmud makes this quizzical statement. It says that every true Torah scholar has to have an eighth of an eighth of hubris. You have to have an eighth of an eighth of haughtiness. One sixty fourth of arrogance. That's the proper amount of hubris that a Torah scholar has to have. And Rashi explains that this means he's supposed to have a small itty bit of hubris and haughtiness. And the reason for that is because you shouldn't be rolled over by the masses. You should have enough confidence and enough panache and enough security in yourself and confidence and uh, in your ability to be able to influence others. If you're too much of a pushover, if you're too humble, well, then you won't be able to execute your responsibilities. That's the idea the Talmud says. But isn't it such a strange way to measure the requisite amount of confidence and hubris that a Torah scholar has to have an eighth of an eighth? So one of the Hasidic masters says that our Parsha, the name of the Parsha is called Shmini, the eighth, the eighth day. And what's the eighth of the eighth? What's the eighth verse of the parsha called Shemini called the eighth? That's when Aaron accepts Moshe's nudge and goes forth. So he explains homiletically, a Torah scholar has to have a small amount of confidence, an eighth of an eighth. What does that mean? Look at the eighth verse of our parsha, parsha Shemini, the parsha of the eighth. Don't be someone who doesn't assume the role that was intended for you because of humility. Humility is great. As long as you have that eighth of the eighth, as long as you approach and embrace the task that the Almighty has chosen for you. It's a nice Hasidic idea. And here we see that Aaron was initially hesitant and he had to be gently pushed by Moshe to accept the job. Was Aaron eager to do the sacrifices? No, he was not. But he yielded to Moshe's 
nudge. Now, by contrast, let's look at what happened afterwards with Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu. And this is one of the most troubling episodes of the whole Torah. On the day of the highest jubilation, the day when all the hard work of the tabernacle was actualized, the day when the fire descended from heaven and consumed Aaron's sacrifices from atop the altar, Aaron's two sons, two of his four, the crown jewels of the people, maybe we could even say the crown princes of the Jewish people, the two people who were slated to replace Moshe and Aaron, they offer a sacrifice of their own. And this time a fire also emanates, but not to consume their offering, but instead it strikes and kills them. And the contrast is a bit jarring. We go from this great climax, the nations falling on their faces in awe and joy. What delight we've been working on the tabernacle for so long, and finally God's presence is amongst us. And we go right from there to the death of the brightest young greats of the people, the two young men who Moshe attested were greater than him. They're struck down. On this seminal day, there's five people who are clothed by Moshe with the priestly garments, who are anointed with a special anointing oil by Moshe. They're made into Kohanim. The world's population of Kohanim, of priests, consists of five people, Aaron and his four sons, and that's it. And on the first day of business, 40% of the world's population of Kohanim die in shocking fashion. And all the sources grapple with the story. How can it be? What did they do wrong that warranted that they get killed. And the Midrash and Rashi and all the commentaries, everyone's trying to figure out the answer to this question. The Midrash, for example, says that they weren't married. They left a trail of would-be suitors in their wake. They were the most eligible bachelors in the nation, and all the women were pining for them, but no one was good enough for them. Or perhaps they were drunk when they walked into the Holy of Holies. Or perhaps they didn't consult with Moshe, or they wanted to replace Moshe and Aaron ahead of their time. And there's a bevy of justifications for the untimely death of Nadav and Avil. But the words of the Torah cannot be ignored. The Torah says, they brought a foreign fire that was not requested by God, and as a result, they were killed. I think it's interesting. We have this contrast of father and sons. Aaron is decidedly hesitant. He doesn't want to offer a sacrifice even though he was chosen and instructed to do so by God via Moshe. Aaron was not eager to offer sacrifices that he was commanded to bring and somehow his two sons, they were eager, they were perhaps overly eager to bring a sacrifice, to bring an offering that they were not commanded to bring. And both approaches are imprecise on opposite sides of the spectrum. Aaron was overly hesitant. He should have accepted the mission, and he needed to be nudged a little bit. And Nadav and Avil, they were wrong on the opposite extreme. They were overly eager. They were irrationally exuberant. And that eagerness resulted in their demise. 
Aaron perhaps was insecure. He was diffident. He was shy. He was bashful. He lacked the confidence to take the initiative and to assume the role intended for him. Yet his sons displayed paramount security and confidence and panache to their detriment and to their demise. And I think this raises a few questions. First of all, how do we understand this disparity? How indeed did Nadav and Avihu act so differently than their father? Where did that come from? In addition, I think this is an important subject for all of us to ponder. When we are faced with an opportunity, is the correct approach to be humble like Aaron and only assume the role when it's foisted upon us? Or perhaps we should be a little bit more decisive and take charge and initiative like his sons and then risk getting burnt. What's the right approach for us? Is there a place for the high-charged, aggressive, initiative-taking of Nadav Naviyu? Or should we always be more hesitant and risk-averse like Aaron? So I want to suggest an approach to answer these questions. This approach will resolve the question of how father and sons reacted in such opposing manners. And I also think it will illuminate for us what is the proper approach for when to risk it all and take the plunge and tread to the unknown and make risky moves like Nadav and Avihu and when to be a bit more circumspect and humble and halting and hesitant like Aaron. This is something that I was thinking about the whole Pesach. I had an extra week to think about it. And I think it's a very important subject. Are you ready? Let's go. Aaron. Aaron needed to be nudged to accept his role. His sons, Nadav Naviyu, they asked no questions, they consulted no one, and they offered a foreign offering. But Aaron, of course, is only one half of the parental units of these two brothers, Nadav and Avil. Who was Aaron's wife, the mother of Nadav and Avil? So all the way back at the beginning of Exodus, we read that Aaron married Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, the sister of Nachshon. So Aaron's wife and the mother of Nadav Naviu is a woman named Elisheva, whose father is Aminadav, whose brother is a gentleman named Nachshon. And Rashi there tells us, this is Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. From here we learn, this is the source, this verse in scripture is the source, that when someone marries a woman, he has to inspect her brother's. Why? Because the majority of sons are similar to the brothers of the mother. The Talmud here tells us, quoted by Rashi, most sons are similar to their maternal uncles. And when it tells us that Aaron married Elisheva, and it tells us who Elisheva's brothers were, or her brother Nachshon, That is not just random information that we need to know for the genealogical tree. 
the reason why Aaron married Elisheva is because he inspected her and he also inspected her brother and her brother was Nachshon. And this is a lesson for us that when you get married, inspect the presumptive or prospective wife's brothers because most of your sons will look like their mother's brothers. So it's interesting that the canonical example that when someone marries a woman, you have to inspect her brothers is with respect to Aaron marrying the sister of Nachshon. And thus it's telling us that Aaron's sons were similar to Nachshon, their uncle. So who was Nachshon, Aaron's brother-in-law? Well, he was from the tribe of Judah. He was actually the prince of the tribe of Judah. And in fact, on the same day that Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons, died, the princes of the tribes began bringing the inauguration offerings and that's detailed in Parshas Nasso in the Book of Numbers. And the first to bring it was Nachshon ben Aminadav, the prince of the tribe of Judah, and the uncle of Nadav and Avihu, who perished that same day. Okay, so what else do we know about Nachshon, the uncle of Nadav and Avihu? Well, this is not explicit in the Torah, but it's found all over the Midrash and the Talmud. It tells us that when the Jewish people were surrounded by the Egyptians at the sea, no one knew what to do. And all the people were saying, you find out something, you do something, you discover what to do. And one man just jumped in. And that is Nachshon, Ben Aminadav, the brother of Elisheva, the brother-in-law of Aaron, the uncle of Nadav and Avihu, who got burned on the first day of Nisan, on the eighth day of the inauguration. Everyone was talking, everyone was deliberating, everyone was trying to figure out what to do, and Nachshon took action and jumped in. The Talmud continues that the waters actually reached Nachshon's nostrils, and only then, when he could go no further, it split for the whole nation. When everyone was frozen and inactive, Nachshon waited for no instructions, commanded by no one, risked it all, and plunged into the dangerous waters. Continues the Talmud. This is in the book of Sota, page 37a. Therefore, the tribe of Judah was granted to be the kings over the Jewish people. The reason why kings, David, Solomon, etc., Messiah, the reason why they come from the tribe of Judah, it's due to the valorous deed of Nachshon to jump in the water and to split the sea when everyone else was waiting for instructions. And remember, this is the canonical source that sons adopt the characteristics of their maternal uncles. The Torah is telling us that Aaron's sons were influenced by their mother's brother, by Nachshon. So to our original question, how did the sons display such opposing character than their father? Here's the answer. Aaron was humble. He wasn't eager. He needed a boost. He needed a nudge. 
But his sons, Nadav and Aviyu, they were like Uncle Nachshon. Before the splitting of the sea, Nachshon jumped into the danger. He plunged into the water. He asked no one. He didn't hesitate. He took initiative. He took action. He risked it all. And this influence went via his sister Elisheva into her and Aaron's sons, Nadav and Aviyu, and they too took a risk and plunged into danger. And they too had a tendency to act unilaterally, without consulting anyone. Maybe they too had a bit too much of an appetite for risk. And they go ahead and they offer an unrequested sacrifice. So question number one has been resolved. Aaron was perhaps a bit timid, indecisive, not confident in his own ability. Maybe we can suggest that when he sought a wife, he looked at her brothers to see what character they had, and he chose Elisheva because her brother was Nachshon, and he felt that that maybe would balance things out. His children will be influenced by their uncle, and boy, was Nachshon's influence manifested in his sons, Nadav and Avil, like Uncle Nachshon, were risk-takers and mavericks. But unfortunately, that proved fatal for them. And this brings us to the second question. What indeed is the proper approach? Should we be bold like Nachshon and Nadavan Aviyu? Or more hesitant and humble and halting and diffident like Aaron? I think now the question is a little bit sharper. The Talmud tells us that the reason why Judah is the tribe of kings is because of Nachshon's bravery and guts to plunge into the water. Evidently, Nachshon's risk-taking without asking anyone, without consultation, is a good thing. It's admirable. It's gallantry worthy of a king. Yet when his nephews do ostensibly the exact same thing, they too plunge into the unknown. They too enter the Holy of Holies and they say, I'm not asking anyone, I'm going to just do it. A fire comes down from heaven and kills them. Which is it? Is being bold and taking initiative and going for it and taking risks, is that a good thing? So good that it warrants that your tribe and your descendants become the family of the monarchy forever? Or is it so egregiously bad that it justifies God killing you right there on the spot. I think the distinction is as follows. We were put here to do great things. If you are a human, you weren't put here to be mediocre. And certainly, if you are a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, if you stood at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai and you experienced theophany and got Torah, the people of our nation must be great, must be transformative. But there are all kinds of obstacles. We feel unworthy. We feel insecure. We have some imposter syndrome. We don't feel like we have the wherewithal to do it. We're not intelligent enough. We're not sufficiently educated. We don't have the skills and the tools to do it. We don't have the financial resources to do it. It's too difficult. It feels impossible. There are barriers and blockades and dead ends every way we turn. 
But the truth is, those are illusions. That's a test. We have to remember, we have God on our side. And he created us to become great. And all the things that lie before us, all those obstacles, the things that inhibit our progress, well, they could all be overcome. The greatest example of this is the nation building the tabernacle, building the Mishkan. How did a nation who just a few months ago were unskilled labor slaves, how did they become craftsmen and artisans who were able to work with fine, intricate crafts of metal and, and weaving and all that? So this is an idea that we spoke about in the past. The Ramban speaks about it. The people were not trained. They didn't have the education and the credentials to do it. They didn't even have someone to mentor them. They hadn't even done an apprenticeship in all these skills. But you know what? They wanted to do it. And they went to Moshe and they said, I'm in. Come what may, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a way. And they weren't trained and they had no teacher and they had no guide but they managed to batter through their perceived problems and do it. If there's a will, there's a way. If the Almighty wants me to do it, nothing will stand in my way. Take initiative and you will succeed. That's the proper attitude when facing resistance. Nachshon embodied this more than anyone else and he was designated to become the father of kings. That's not only Nachshon. He comes from a long line of people who act perhaps a bit what we would classify as recklessly, and they take risks by following their conviction, come what may. Judah, of course, the forbearer of the tribe of Judah, he was brave. He was a risk taker. He even threatened Joseph, the king, before he knew was Joseph. He said to him, I'll kill you if you don't release Benjamin. Oh, and Nachshon's other antecedent, Tamar, Boy, did she ever take a risk and do something reckless because of her conviction. Well, who is Judah and Tamar's son and the forbearer of Nachshon? They had twins, if you remember Genesis chapter 38, Peretz and Zerach. Zerach stitched his hand out and Peretz bursts out first. In fact, the name Peretz, which means to breach as in to Breach an impregnable wall signifies this attitude. This is the attribute of kings. They don't see any problems. They go for it. They take initiative. They breach the walls of resistance and forge ahead. In fact, the Talmud actually describes a king as someone who is poretz, who breaches the wall to make a path. A king, by definition is someone who sees paths and opportunities everywhere. The barriers are something that need to be breached. That's Judah, that's Peretz, that's Nachshon, that's King David, that's Messiah. That's the monarchy. Enter Nadav and Avil. These are the sons of Aaron, but they're also the nephews of Nachshon. And they act like Uncle 
Nachshon. They take action. They don't wait around. They don't consult. They do. They act. I wanted to speculate that this is even evident in their names. The word Nadav means when someone is inspired to do and to give. And it's used frequently in describing the patrons of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. And just like the people who contributed to the tabernacle do not necessarily have the talent or the wherewithal to do it, they willed themselves to contribute. And it worked out marvelously. I don't have the talent, so what? Figure it out. I don't have the money, I'll donate. And it will work out. That's Nadav. He said, I will do something, even though I don't have the authorization, even though I'm not following proper protocol, whatever. I'm doing it anyhow. The resistance is an illusion. And his brother is Avihu. And the word Avihu, or the words Avihu, means he is my father. Avi, my father. Who? He is. The Almighty is our father. What do I have to worry about? We got this. I'm good. That's the Nachshonian attitude. What am I worried about? I have the Almighty as my father. I'm designed and designated for greatness. And that's what the Almighty, my father in heaven wants. I have a filial relationship with God. He's going to provide me cover. He will help me batter through the resistance. If I have God on my side, we're good. There's nothing bad that can happen. But you weren't instructed. Who cares? I'm going in. Nonetheless, I have God on my side. I'm going to be motivated internally, not to go in. And they walk into the Holy of Holies to bring their offering. But it totally backfired. And they both died. And why did they die? They died because although in certain areas you are supposed to take the initiative, you are supposed to go above and beyond, you're supposed to do things even though you weren't instructed, you're supposed to see obstacles as a test, as a wall that needs to be breached. But it depends what is the nature of that resistance. If you feel like you have some insecurity, maybe you should power through it. What if other people are stopping you? Well, there's a way around it. Well, what about if the problem is finances? Well, God's a billionaire. I don't have the talent, the ability. You'll discover it. You have latent ability that you didn't know that you have. What about the waters reaching up to my nostrils? Don't worry, God will split it for you. But what about when the resistance is God himself? God is very precise about what happens at the tabernacle. Everything must be precisely in accordance with his detailed instructions. When the barriers to your plans are erected by God, that wall indeed is unbreachable. And trying to batter through that resistance is fatal. And that was the problem with Nadav and Avil. Under different circumstances, their valor and gallantry would have warranted that they become kings. So brave and fearless and bold and audacious. That's what their uncle Nachshon did. God will protect me. What am I worried about? There's nothing to worry about. The danger is an illusion. The obstacle is a mirage. And God said, this person is indeed someone worthy of becoming a king. 
This attitude ought to serve as a model for all the people to follow. Goliath is eight feet tall and muscular and plated in armor. And all I have is a lousy slingshot. Nothing to worry about. I have God on my side. He wants me to become great. Everything that stops me is a paper tiger. The wall will be breached. But what about when God himself makes the barrier? That's not a breachable wall. That's an electrified fence, and if you touch it, you die. On the same day that Nachshon offered the inauguration tribute as the prince of the tribe of Judah, his two nephews followed in his ways, but this time it wasn't the waters of the sea stopping them, it was God, and they died. The lesson for us is clear. Our national mandate is to perfect the world. But we see so many obstacles before us. We feel insecure. Can we be the vehicle to change the world? Can we really impact people? Can we really make this world a domicile for God? We feel inadequate. It's too big for us. We're too small for it. We don't have the tools and the resources and the training and the pedigree and the mandate and the authorization. Who told me to do it? Where is your documentation? Show me your CV. Give me some guidance. Instruct me. Help me. That's not the questions we asked. Nachshon and the family of the teams show us how to deal with adversity. We've got to burst through it. We have to take the initiative. We have to discover our unknown talents. And you know what? You will find a way. Muster up the courage and the bravado and the panache and be a little braggadocious, maybe an eighth of an eighth, and recognize that this is what the Almighty wants of you. Those obstacles, that's a test. Unless those obstacles are the will of God, trying to breach that fence is futile and fatal. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. Now, if you don't know what A and Q is, or if this is the first time that you are listening to the Parsha Podcast, well, first of all, welcome. Great to have you here. But also, maybe you forgot over Pesach, what's A and Q? A and Q stands for answers and questions. Well, Rabbi, isn't it questions and answers? No, it's the opposite. Questions and answers, you... The audience asked the presenter a question, and the presenter has to provide an answer. Here, it's the opposite. On the Parsha podcast, it's the opposite. It's A and Q, answers and questions, because I am going to provide you with a question. And if you have an answer, send it to me. Chew over the question. Come up with an answer. That's the challenge, and that is the A and Q. So here is this week's A and Q. In our Parsha, it tells us, about the laws of kosher and the animals that are kosher and the ones that are not kosher. And Rashi tells us something really interesting. Rashi tells us that there was an element of show and tell with respect to the animals that are kosher or not kosher. The verse tells us that Moshe told the Jewish people, Zos hachaya, this is the animal that's kosher and this is the animal that's not kosher. Says Rashi, this teaches us that Moshe held in his hand an animal and says, this one's kosher. And then he held a second animal and says, this one's not kosher. And then he did that with the 
fish and he did that with the birds and he did that with the creepy crawlers, with every animal that he mentioned, kosher or not kosher, he did a live demonstration. He did a show and tell. This is kosher and this is not kosher. Now, Rashi sources this from the Midrash. The Talmud has a slightly different way of telling over the story. It wasn't that Moshe did show and tell for the Jewish people. It was that God did show and tell for Moshe and lifted every animal. This is kosher. This is not kosher. But regardless, there was an animal by animal display. This, yes. This, no. And here is this week's A and Q. Other laws did not get a visual demonstration. Why specifically are the laws of kosher and non-kosher animals the only ones to get a live demonstration? This animal is kosher. This animal is not kosher. To just say, hey, let me give you a list. These animals are kosher. These animals are not kosher. Without the show and tell, you would imagine the people could figure it out. Camel, not kosher. Make a whole long list. The bovines, they're kosher. The birds, well, it depends. This, 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 kosher, this and this, this, not kosher. Why does it have to be visualized? Why specifically are the kosher animals, the not kosher animals displayed, show and tell to the Jewish people? And the rest of the other laws are not conveyed in that visual manner. If you have an answer to this question, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Now, typically, at this juncture of the podcast, I like to talk about last week's A&Q and share with you all an answer for last week. But last week, we didn't have a Parsha podcast. And the previous week, we asked the question on Pesach, and that's not really relevant anymore. Plus, the answers that we got were so fabulous, I'm really saving it for an episode. Please got to do before Next Pesach. So I'm not going to tell you what the answers were, even though they were fabulous. You can trust me on that, but you'll have to stick with us. Please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll do an episode on that sometime in the future, maybe before next Pesach. But regardless, that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. My name is Rabbi Akavolbi. I'm coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Thank you for your friendship and listenership. Shabbat Shalom. And take care.